I really want to be convinced by it. I want to think that this is the answer. I want to feel like I can put my trust into these inventions and the people behind them and feel safe. If we can't do the right thing with something at our doorstep as devastating as COVID-19, how can we expect people to do anything about climate change? You know, mitigation efforts have not worked to date. So we need some treatments and cures. We need those vaccines for the planet. Hi, Thomas. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Um, I don't think we've probably spoken much since, um, but to give a little bit of background, you wrote a book called Hacking Earth, um, which looks at technologies and maybe new innovations and inventions that we may use to dampen the consequences of climate change, right? And my background with the book was um, going through and doing some fact checking and just sort of trawling through all the details, which I learned a lot. Um, but I'll be honest, I still can't really make up my mind about where I sit with this, which I think is fair because there is behind your book, you know, years of research and articles and opinions on this whole topic. Um, but the thing is, I really want to be convinced by it. I want to think that this is the answer. You know, I, I want to feel like I can put my trust into these inventions and the people behind them and feel safe and feel, I don't know, like there is a solution, um, especially in the face of things that Donald Trump says and things that even like my friends and family say about climate change and what we have to do to stop it happening at the rate that it is. So I guess, yeah, I wanted to talk to you so that I can be more convinced by it. <laughs> um, so is the book meant to be a guide to geoengineering, you know, a look at what is out there, the good and the bad, or is it meant to be a persuasive argument? Well, let me just back up and say that you did a lot more than just fact-checking on the book, and I really appreciate all the work you put into it, because without you, it wouldn't have happened. So, <laughs> and also um, glad that it, it opened your eyes to something new in this space, um, because I know you've been, you know, looking at the environmental space, not only from an activist standpoint, but from a producer standpoint, and just an academic standpoint as well. So I'm glad that it opened your eyes and I'm glad that it provoked something in you and I'm glad that it's controversial. And all of those things bring more people into the tent. And the idea behind the book is that it's a, it's a camel's nose, if you will, under the tent to give a look at some of the possibilities there. Look, there's not an all-some answer to solving the issue of climate change. We are not all going to just snap our fingers and it's going to get better. Um, I just watched a comedic show um, last night and it was a special on Netflix. And this guy was talking about 
what we've done for the environment and you know how scary it could be but we've done as much as we can be and the joke was uh, done as much as we can do and the joke was well we've all brought our canvas bags with us and then he's like and that's about it and so that was kind of the whole thing like what mm -hmm. have we done you know and and what i look at with the book is all these different fascinating as you well know technologies that exist that can mitigate or even reverse climate change in certain circumstances so why aren't we at least investigating those with with some dollars and some capital and some science why aren't we putting some of that to use in a small way you know the, the bigger construct around geoengineering is that it's a large-scale manipulation of the ecosystems in order to thwart global warming well we don't have to take it 100 percent there right we don't have to put a space parasol uh, up into outer space and have it deflect the sun as our first step maybe there's a baby step maybe we can start off with different things uh, that will allow us to at least have a fighting chance for the rest of us to get involved in the mitigation efforts. Um, you know, mitigation efforts have not worked to date. We're still having a rise in uh, carbon emissions. We're still having all sorts of environmental issues. Sure, the pandemic that we're experiencing now has reversed some of the consequences because there's less cars on the road, because we're polluting less um, that way. But at the same time, what are we gonna do when things open up again? Can we embrace technologies to allow us to forge a more green future? And so the book looks at a lot of that. And so it's not um, a, a preaching of climate technology. It's basically a presentation of climate technology. And my argument is we have for centuries already geoengineered the planet. So can we use best in class technologies that we have at our disposal today in order to do a better job of managing the climate? And mother nature can't do her job anymore. So we have to step in with what we have at our disposal in order to help her along and maybe reverse some of the carbon emissions that are out there. Uh, maybe we can reverse some of the consequences of pollution, plastics in the ocean, uh, dead zones, those types of things. So it's really a broader look. And trust me, I get a lot of pushback about geoengineering, a lot. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> even just by people who are supposedly climate consultants uh, for a project that I'm working on right now who said, oh, no, 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 geoengineering, we don't want any part of that. So I said, okay, Mr. Sophisticated Climate Consultant, tell me what you think geoengineering is. And there's a long pause. <laughs> and that, that's my point, is that we're mm -hmm. not stepping into education. We're doing something very viscerally when it comes to some of these solutions. And I was just reminded of Andrew Yang, the former presidential mm -hmm. candidate here, who is very progressive, who is very much behind geoengineering. Um, so I think when, you know, the younger generation starts to look at some of the possibilities of technology, uh, look what it's done for socialization, look what it's done and, you know, is to help people who have been on lockdown. Imagine what it would be like during COVID-19 
when you're quarantined and you have no access to technology. <laughs> right? That's when you start to go, I am isolated in prison, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But technology has helped us. We can order our food online. We can talk to people. We can do this. You mm -hmm. know, all of these things. So why not use it in a different way? Why not leverage it in a good way? And let's put on some benign sort of monocles here and look at the world through this lens that is positive and not destructive. Mm -hmm. And for too long, we've basically demonized technology. We've demonized corporations and it hasn't gotten us anywhere because in my mind, they have the biggest influence on our lives. Commercialization is the biggest influence beside government on our lives. And we, certainly can't rely on uh you know what's in the white house right now to guide us into this area or in any you know really big fashion you know when, we're, when we have the biggest commercial um economy in the world in the united states and we're not doing anything for the environment what mm -hmm. then we have to look to the commercial sector to turn things around and we're seeing a lot of signs that that's happening uh, especially during the pandemic. If you look at environmental, social, and corporate governance funds, for example, the best performers, people mm -hmm. are looking to invest in these types of things because it does something that we all should be very concerned about today, and it mitigates risk. There's there's a lot in there that I think I want to like dig into over this. Um, I think one thing the the way you sort of say like you know we've been doing this already for so long we've always sort of altered the planet to fit our needs and we've only just getting better and better at that i mean doesn't that kind of come in levels like to compare you know like building a canal to um spraying stuff into the clouds that reflects the sun rays i mean that's quite like um, those are really different and the implications and the like knock-on effects of all of those are are both of those are pretty different like is it not sort of scarier now to do it because we're so good at it well I would argue it depends on your position if you are a farmer and you live in an area where a canal may be you know negative to your your farmland you're going to put a canal there and redirect water away from your farm. What then? And we're experiencing this in California. Mm. So what then? You know, if, if you're a resident of that neighborhood and water is being redirected into a canal and you don't have water for your home now, or you have less of it, or maybe it's tainted or there's toxins in it that didn't exist before, that's a different perspective. So I think we have to look at these things from multiple points of view and say, sure, that, that's very personal. And this is the thing about climate. It should be very personal. And the only way it gets personal is through weather and through consequences that are destructive, like redirection of water supplies, uh, pollution in certain areas, uh, smog. Those types of things are very personal because then they affect health in a locality. But that locality, let's say it's here in Los Angeles, is of no concern to you in London. Mm -hmm. So now we have this moral question of how do we then have universal law come into effect here? And that's what's missing in this mm -hmm. discussion. So 
sure, you know, if, even if you look at it in a very sophisticated way of water, um, if we collect a lot of water here in the United States, we collect rainfall, et cetera, as you well know, water is universal. Mm -hmm. It's a water cycle. So it's very difficult to explain, but the water that's in this glass, uh, after it's drunk and after, you know, several months is going to end up transpiring somewhere into the air. And then that could come as rainfall in Indonesia, for example, and that could then, you know, have an effect there. So the more that I pour it here, the less that's available there. And again, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but we need a better education around the environment and around climate so that we can then address the issues that are to come. We haven't even addressed the issues that are presented to us today until they land at our doorstep in the form of floods, tropical storms, et cetera, or droughts. So what can we do in the future? It's a very difficult uh, discussion to have. And I liken it to the pandemic. If mm. you have disease that is, has the potential to kill you, to literally kill you, and you still walk outside and don't wear a mask, which a lot of people do, and a lot of people aren't social distancing, and they're not doing the right thing, this is without a vaccine. How can we then expect climate change, which has you know, a 40 year gestation period, for a potential in the future for people to really sit up and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. If we can't do the right thing with something at our doorstep as devastating as COVID-19, how can we expect people to do anything about climate change? Um, that's think, why we need to intervene and do some things mm -hmm. so that we have the potential when, when consequences get really dire to have some things like silver bullets at our disposal. You, you kind of end the book that way, I think I remember, by saying, like, you know, I, I, back then you were comparing it to, like, you know, we still get drunk and eat bad food and take drugs, even though we know that it's going to have an adverse effect in the future. So why should we feel any differently as a collective about something that seems so inexperienceable right now? And yeah, like, I suppose, has the pandemic just made you even more sort of concrete in that view of like, well... <laughs> There's no convincing people. <laughs> yeah, well, interestingly, um, the last page of the book, or the last few sentences, I say, you know, we need a vaccine for the planet. You yes. Know, we, you know, we've gone through and done the right things. Just like with the public health crisis, we've, you know, tried to wear a mask, we've quarantined, we've social distanced, you know, maybe not all of us, but some of, you know, a, mm. a big chunk of us have. Mm. Those are all mitigation efforts in public health. Um, we don't have a vaccine. We don't have treatments, and we need that. For the climate, we've brought our bags to the grocery store. We've turned down the thermostat in our home to, you know, create less carbon emissions. We've stopped our cars from idling. We take public transportation. That's all mitigation as well. But that's not treatment or a cure. So we need some treatments and cures. We need those vaccines for the planet. And that's what I present in the book. And mm -hmm. a lot of them are, you know, very much based in science. There's a few that I bring to the table just to show the extremes. Mm 
like space parasol. I show the extreme of where we could go with this. But then I walk it back to show things like, I don't know, cool roofs and cool roads, which is just a more, you know, analog version of a space parasol. Because when you're lightning roads or you're putting different surfaces on your roofs, then of course you're then lessening the albedo effect and, you know, or increasing the albedo effect. So you have, you know, more of the sun's rays going out of the planet's atmosphere into outer space or cools the planet. Very easy thing to do, but it's the same thing. It's solar engineering, either way you look at it. So what, how, how far do we want to take this? And that's the question. Mm-hmm. Um, can we then just do entire neighborhoods of cool roofs and cool roads to, to lower temperatures there? Can we, you know, do the, you know, the more sophisticated version of planting trees with carbon capture with artificial trees or devices that suck carbon out of the atmosphere? You know, those things, are they going to interrupt the planet's ecosystems to, you know, in all some degree that it's going to have a negative effect all over the world? No. If we did it in a huge way, perhaps, because we don't Mm. know the ramifications of taking too much carbon out of the atmosphere, because we don't know still how greenhouse gases interact with one another to cause temperature rise. Mm -hmm. We still don't. Um, so lots of these things still need more investigation, but we need to get on the train. And, you know, if you look at Cambridge University, which has set up its um, new uh, climate fix or climate repair center, uh, the U.S. has now put, you know, a piddly amount of money, but like $4 million into investigating geoengineering. But then you have people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and others who are looking at commercial applications mm-hmm. of geoengineering and i think that's the future you have Mm -hmm. about a four billion dollar um economy now being built in climate technology and carbon capture Uh, people are making pencils they're making uh chairs they're making uh fuel out of the carbon that is taken out of the atmosphere and and repurposing so there's a lot of innovative ways to get around this uh and i think just hoping that we're all going to you know, get together and do the right thing is at this stage of the game, uh, naive. It seems like there is an overwhelmingly larger amount of science that sort of is put forward to show that nature does its best when it's sort of left to do its thing, right? Untampered, you know, biodiversity, ahoy, like just... But you're sort of taking things that, in these examples you're given, you're taking things that happen already in nature, like trees and like um, light sands reflecting the sun in deserts. And then it's like this, the technologies are just scaling this up hugely. And that definitely, um, when, like, when I think it through that way, that definitely dampens um, fears down. I mean, is, are those the kind of texts that are being invested in and looked at the most or you know is that how you get an investor on board well that's biomimicry as as we know you know so if you look at a a technology based biomimicry uh, application then that is getting a lot of traction because it's the easiest you know uh, regenerated soil for example 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's something we're stepping in. We're doing nature's job for her. We're regenerating the soil with all sorts of, you know, fancy fertilizers and, and uh, even some nanotechnology um, as well. If we look at biomimicry, which is getting a lot of traction in certain circles, mm. um, that does have different applications. And we are able to see what nature is able to do, for example, with carbon capture. Um, you look at just rocks that have risen up through, you know, deep earth to the, you know, by uh, tectonic ships. And those rocks, capture carbon out of the atmosphere exponentially more than any tree could. So we could take that technology, break it down, and just look at what that rock is composed of, what's the you know, composite of that, and then replicate that, and then use that as some form of carbon capture. If you look at traditional, a very, very simple example here is dunes dunes on beaches you know dunes are not only a protector of land that we can use to look at how we can create better seawalls for sea level rise but they're also a way to filter water so you have water filtration systems that nature already has at her disposal to recycle water And they do that here in in Orange County, California, where they basically take a toilet-to-tap mentality, um, literally. So the toilet water is then flushed through a series of filters. And there are lasers and there are ultraviolet lights that go through and clean that water. But Mm -hmm. then that's not enough. What they do is they take it and they put it into a reservoir that has... Uh, uh, the ability to allow that water to percolate up to the surface and that cleans the water more than any lab can Mm -hmm. and that's nature's own system of doing it and you've probably seen a lot of these survival shows where you you can go you know people go out into you know the hinterlands and into into uh the for the deep forests and instead of just drinking water you know directly from a stream which could kill you you try and get something that is bubbled up you know, through, through the ground. And that's a natural filtration system. Um, so we can look at what nature has done for, our, you know, the basics of our lives, which is water, waste, energy, or the sun, and shelter. And if we look at some of that, that is, I think, a really good starting point. And, and we have, you know, Norman Foster, when he built Mazder City in the UAE, which is the city of the future, you know, the first city specifically designed to be off-grid. He didn't just look at technologies that were available today and that may be available in the future. He went back and looked at desert societies and desert communities from ages ago and said, okay, how are they, how did they cope with extreme heat? How did they cope with droughts? You know, and, and looked at how the buildings were built closer together. So they created shades or very shady alleyways to keep things cool. Mm-hmm. And then how did they site those buildings so they could better capture wind and then redirect that wind to cool things down. 
So looking at where the sun is, looking at how you could then cite the community, I think are things that we need to look at when you look at communities of the future and we're heading toward a global population of you know, 9 billion people. Mm. Um, how are we gonna account for population growth? And that's the big sticking point for a lot of us. You know, can we feed that amount of people uh, with the facilities that we have today, with the amount of land that's available to us today. You know, if you looked at just a uh, hundred years ago, we used about 20% of the arable land on earth to, to basically feed the population. Uh, we use more than 50% of the arable land on earth now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the population. What are we going to do when land runs out? Um, so you have a lot of different, you know, real rock stars in this place, um, like Zeus out of the, out of Rotterdam. And they did a, a fascinating exhibit for that. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but there was, there was an exhibit at uh, the VNA, uh, Victoria mm-hmm. in, on, um, the future, the future of everything mm-hmm. it's called. And they looked at the future of, and, and it did it through a very interesting, um, perspective of social justice as well. Because as we should point out, the most vulnerable communities on the planet are those that are most exposed to climate change and its destruction and they're on the front lines. So what are the future of communication, mobility, and even society? And so um, Christian Corman is the guy's name who who runs Zeus. And um, we went out and we looked at the dune cities that he built in the Netherlands. and basically what he did was he recreated um, what nature had already done there and dredged the ocean <laughs> and put that sand there to create a, a community where it just was water before. Mm-hmm. And that is, a, is an environmentally friendly community that um, has a lot of the faculties that you were speaking of when it comes to nature. Uh, but then he did something else really cool. In 2008, in Rotterdam, after the financial mm-hmm. crisis, all of these multinational corporations had these office towers, mm-hmm. uh, like PricewaterhouseCoopers and such, and they abandoned them. And they said, we're out. You know, we, you know, we don't, we're going to have to reallocate resources. We're going to figure out where we're going to put our, you know, employees. We're out. So. It was like, you know, all of this, you know, movement for um, multinational corporations to be attracted to Rotterdam all of a sudden was gone. Mm-hmm. We're worried the same thing's going to happen in London <laughs> after yeah, Brexit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of that has moved back over there. Mm. But at the time, the city, the mayor said, okay, let's just, let's do something. Let's just raise all of these giant buildings, these commercial buildings, and make it more of an indoor-outdoor landscape, and we'll, we'll reconstruct, you know, the whole downtown area. And Christian, who's a, a, a landscape architect by training, said, hold on a second. Give me three years. Don't do anything. It's going to take you that long to get the permits and get buy-in and all this anyway. Just give me three years. And what he did was he, he uh, created a bridge over a lot of the um, major thoroughways there between different communities in that area and connected them. Mm-hmm. And then he brought in artists and gave them a place to live in Laos. 
and then he brought in galleries on the, on the ground floor. And then he brought in musicians and then he created a radio station. And then they had rooftop gardens that could feed the community and everybody could walk over this bridge and be more connected. And downtown Rotterdam, without having to do anything, without having to destroy that and waste everything there and build something new with new material, now thrives. They get thousands of people that go to these brew houses on Friday evenings, the artists show up, the musicians play, the radio station broadcasts from down there. They feed them, uh, they feed everybody in the community with the food that's grown on the green roofs. And it's become a major success story of yeah. how just rethinking something rather than tearing it down and building something new mm-hmm. can change things for the better. And I think that's an important point to bring up here is that community and the connections that we create through community is something that we need to focus more on because Mm -hmm. that is what is going to affect with the big E change. We're seeing it in the Black Lives Matter movement when you create a sense of community and it doesn't have to be a locale, it can be a mentality. When Mm -hmm. you create a sense of community, people will then gravitate to that community. And then you can start to embark upon your mission. And if that's racial and social justice, great. If it happens to be the environment, great. But we need to build pods of community facilitated by technology to bring people together so that we can then affect change. And I think that's another thing that climate technology allows us to do. That is a really, really nice story. It makes me wonder, like, the... The community, it sounds really, I mean, it sounds kind of like hippie almost. It sounds like, have you ever been to Christiania in Copenhagen? Or, I mean, it almost sounds a little bit just like Shoreditch or Brooklyn or something like that. And I wonder if there's this flip side where there's the people that will love this and love that sort of feeling and belonging and caring of a place or or a, a way of thinking about our use of resources, like you say. Um, And then there's this other side where there's a human sort of obsession with progress, with new things, with the next step, with the flashiest, with the, you know, something that's like exciting, um, you know, going out to space and stuff like that. I wonder if a lot of people would view somewhere like Mazdar City or, um, you know, somewhere where you've got a garden on your roof which filters your water and that's where you get your apples from as sort of like taking a step back. I think it's how it's presented. I mean, Norman Foster um, is probably the most progressive uh, architect of our time. And his buildings are radical looking. I mean, look at the Garko, you know, the the Swiss Army building downtown London. I mean, that, that is one of the most radical, you know, changes to a city landscape. And then to cool. go right to the flip side of that, you know, people look at that and they go, wow, that's cool. That's progressive. But he brings you in. And then he's all about, you know, sustainability. So I think, how do we get people in? Flash mm-hmm. is definitely a way to do it. You know, and that's why celebrity is important in this space, too, because it's, it's the, you know, it's the shiny object. You know, so we need a lot of shiny objects to get people to like swim over there. And then mm-hmm. once they're there, we got to be able to hook them with something that is meaningful. 
And to date, you know, there's been a lot of shiny objects and celebrities talking about, you know, doing the right thing and everything else and everybody swims over there and it's like, well, now what? You know, th there needs to be more action items and there needs to be a true movement. And that's why, you know, I'm hopeful that some of the protests that we're seeing today um, will manifest into something concrete because mm -hmm. a lot of times this, this ends up with not a lot of action items at the end of it. You know, the Me Too movement, you, you really don't even hear so much about gender equality anymore um, or, or gender discrimination because it's been replaced by, unfortunately, some of the other tragedies facing us today. So mm -hmm. what can we do to keep all these balls in the air? And, you know, it's, it's great that they've risen to the surface, but I think at the same time, we need to progress. And, and if we go back to just telling people, well, you have to like live life more simply, you have to sacrifice your purchases, you have to, you know, do less, um, that is antithetical to human nature. Mm. You know, to your point, we, we do want to progress. We do want to keep pushing toward the you know, proverbial right wall of mm. human existence. So what can we do to feed that? And I think the book feeds a lot of that. And, and our, our natural, and that's why our natural preponderance to, to go toward the future is because we like the unknown. That's mm. why we're, you know, sending ships into outer space and sending people to space. We want to know what's out there, you know, mm. what's next, what is new. And that's why it's, it's framed in Hacking Planet Earth as the future, because it, it begs, what are we headed for? You know, that science fiction future that we all think is, is you know, where we're headed for, and we're going to all wear spacesuits and, you know, fly around. <laughs> on a Holiday on the moon. <laughs> yeah, that type of thing. I mean, it gets people thinking because it's outside, like, what we're, we're comfortable with. Um, and, I, and I also wanted to reposition the argument as forward-looking rather than sacrificial. Mm. You know, rather than saying, oh, my God, doom and gloom is the future. Here's the cool future. You know, let's head in that direction. Let's go to something that is, uh, you know, clean and shiny and better for us. And it's not going to take so much sacrifice. It's going to take, and this is important, goodwill. And it's going to take a lot of political will for us to get there. Um, so what can we do in a commercial sense beyond just buying, you know, the right things? And we're seeing, you know, the sustainable shopper. Uh, become a, a big influence in the commercial sector, in the, you know, especially in the retail side. What can we do in the finance side? What can we mm -hmm. do in the venture capital side? What can we do in the business creation entrepreneur side to engender this type of mentality? And mm -hmm. hopefully it speaks to a lot of that. Yeah, I, I mean, we always have this idea that, you you know, you've got on the one side having to convince like industry and on the other, it's about getting politicians and the government on board and making any kind of change but I mean you mentioned Andrew Yang earlier and he was very much like you know UBI and let's get everyone ready for job transitioning into renewable energies and you know getting truckers out of their trucks and colas out of the mines and stuff like that and even with like the SpaceX launch um 
where, you know, like now we're seeing this merging of what was historically a very, you know, high government sort of, um, you know, only they dealt with it in NASA and in, in the European Space Agency and Russia and Japan and stuff. And now you've got SpaceX, you know, working with them. And this is this, this is all changing up. Do you think that that's a part of the equation, this merging? Or do you think that it's still sort of like, really, it's the private sector just expanding into these fields? No, I think it has to be a public-private partnership um, across the board, because you need the, the influence of government. You know, but the yeah. private sector come into our lives and say, stay in your home for 14 days. <laughs> but we go. did it. Sorry, right. piss off, right? <laughs> Not but if the government does that, you go, okay, you know, you, you know that's, that's rules, regulations, law. Yeah, so we, yeah. we need that. We need a little bit of both. But we need the private sector to show us, just like it has with the public health crisis, this is what's in the science, especially scientists, to be able to say, this is what's going to happen if you don't do that, right? So we need to be able to say, and here's the solution for that. So, you know, right now we need the, the equivalent of pharmaceutical companies in the climate space. You know, you know right now mm -hmm. every pharmaceutical company is lit up saying, you know, we are on the path to a cure for COVID-19 we should have the same mentality. Um, and it doesn't have to be just in the energy sector, by the way. And this is, this is another important point. If you look at a company like Beyond Meat, mm. you know, the guy who started that, Ethan Brown, did not start that as a food, a food replacement company. He started it as a climate, with a climate yeah. mission. Mm -hmm. Because he said, you know, we've all focused on energy as the biggest solution to climate change. What about agriculture? So let me start this, didn't know anything about the food business, instead because it has such a big carbon footprint, and let me go down that path to see if I can, you know, make change. Mm. And it's, you know, gloriously, you know, worked. So we're starting to see, I think, people look at climate from different perspectives and how we can make change, all based on science and technology. Mm. And then once we get behind that, you know, maybe governments will start to see a benefit behind this and mm -hmm. we start to see some buy-in from from the government side how much of this do you think requires cooperation between governments all over the world because with covid i mean the what they told us to do was definitely individual but you know if we were all isolated if this was happening um, say the virus found its way around the whole world anyway, but we all didn't talk and interact. There would be very much less information about how to stop the spread, and I, most countries have sort of reacted the same way, right, um, to the pandemic. Um, how much of that do you think needs to happen with this? We've had it. I mean, that's the thing. We've, we've had the UN protocols. And I would argue that we've done a disastrous job with COVID in terms of we don't see right. a national panel on how to deal with the public health crisis. We're certainly not speaking between the US and China where we're seeing for whatever bizarre reason, the UK take the complete opposite point of view and stop people from coming into the country after everybody else has opened up. I mean, there's a complete lack of dialogue between the major powers even never mind mm -hmm. the developing 
world, which is probably sitting there going, we don't get our seat at the table anyway. Now what's going to happen to us, right, in terms of testing? So we do not have consensus view on this. We do not have an international panel that's basically saying, these are the best practices that we've seen work in our space. You guys should try this too, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know what you guys are up to, but you know, maybe you don't get a seat at the table. Uh, but the same thing with, with climate change, we're not doing that. You know, I work with a lot of the, you know, the cutting edge guys who sit on the, the, the Nobel committees on these, on the UN committees on these, on international committees on these. And in those, you know, board-like settings, there is a discussion of what's working and what isn't. Mm. But you're not seeing that manifest at the government level. And that's the problem. So the science community is talking amongst itself, which is great. So you have scientists from the U.S. talking to scientists from China, talking to scientists from the U.K. and blah, blah, blah. But you're not having government officials sit in on those meetings, nor are you having government officials talk amongst themselves when they should be. That's true, yeah. You know, when you look at the COP meetings or any of those, um, we're not having any agenda that says, let's talk about best practices. And I don't know whether it's ever going to exist at the federal level. You know, if you look at things like the C40, the, you know, the cities who have, you know, embraced climate change and said at the local level, which is true, this is what we're doing and these are our best practices and this is what you may do and then start to create some type of discussion there. That's where I'm seeing the most progress is on the, on the local level with progressive mayors from around the world. Mm. Um, that's really where the game is at right now. Um, if we could get that to rise up to a regional level and then the federal level, and then have that be kind of a management construct that I think would be a positive thing because we have a case right now where, you know, I don't think that Donald Trump is the best person to tell me how I should be, you know, figuring out where to, where to go. And, and strangely enough, I hate it, it's not even his fault. Any person in that position is, is not the person to be able to tell me what's best practices in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That should be up to the, either the, the town mayor or the city mayor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're looking at who knows where the nursing homes are or the population is more at risk. That should have been the first go-to mechanism. Same thing with the climate. Who are the most vulnerable in our communities and who can best speak to them and show what we can do there first? And we're not looking at that perspective. We're going from an elitist perspective. You know, we're going to Whole Foods and saying, okay, everybody here is kind of, you know, climate friendly, but that's not where the majority of the population is living and shopping and being educated. We need to get really to a more of a, uh, a look at disenfranchised communities and how can we best, you know, help them rise up because that's that's where the rubber is eventually going to meet the road first so you would you would start small in in local where a a, a new implementation or a new technology wouldn't be able to ripple out so much i mean we kind of saw with like with the bigger techs 
that the, the ripple effect, the knock-on effect could be huge, right? Does there not sort of need to be bigger people in charge? <laughs> well, there is a geoengineering panel set up by the UN. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at all sorts of things like ocean fertilization and some protocols around that. Um, solar uh, stratospheric aerosol injection, which is basically solar engineering. Um, they're looking at some protocols around that. Um, so there, there is, you know, a group that's getting together to say, mm, let's take a look at some of these technologies and what the ramifications could be. And do we need to have some type of you know, global regulation around this. Um, the Saudi Arabia and the U.S. have abstained from sitting in on those committees um, for different reasons. And um, there is a lot of talk about what can we do, what should we do, what might we do, what ought we do mm -hmm. in the geoengineering space. Because this is an important statistic that, you know, I think needs to be out there is that we only have you know, about nine years left before we're going to go past, you know, a major consequential point of global, you know, temperature rise. Mm -hmm. And at that point, what do we do then? You know, do we wait until, you know, our homework is due and then we, you know, crash the night before? Um, or do we start to implement things where we can do some, some rigid science um, investigation behind it? We can look at, you know, some modeling. Um, and that's the other thing with, with geoengineering. You know, we live in a world where I can step into a, a glass cube and I will think that I am in the Louvre and I can see paintings as if they're there in front of me. And, you know, we have all of these incredible 3D technologies and virtual reality spaces that we can not only use for kind of fun, and mm. but we can use it for science and say, mm. well, this is what's going to happen if we do this. And that's what's going to happen if we do that. So we have to use that as well. So we're not just out there willy-nilly saying, okay, let's just go put a space on, you know, a space shield on top of the planet and see if that works. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. We need to like model these things out and, mm -hmm. and really have a look at it. So that's the way that we're doing this. That's the way that a lot of these, um, sort of bigger techs are being tested through VR and AI. Yeah, yeah you know, for a lot of different yeah. Can we dig into that a little bit? Like, how does that work? Are, like, are they building sort of model planet Earths that we can test on? Um, they, well, there, there are microcosm, you know, planet Earths. Um, mm -hmm. The most, you know, recognizable is the biosphere. And, there's a biosphere one, biosphere two, and now there's a, a new bias ocean fear off uh, the coast of Florida where it imitates, you know, uh, life in a, in a different way. Mm. Um, so there are different places where we're experimenting with these things. Um, that way, um, kind of in that Noah's Ark way, if you think about it, you know, or taking little bits of, you know, our existence and putting it into one place. Um, but we're also able to do that now with 3D printing. You know, we can, we can print things um, that are conceptual just from our computers. We can then create an entire world um, on our computers and see what that looks like. Um, if you look at, you know, laser weather modification, 
uh, the, that's being done in labs in Geneva, and they're not out there shooting lasers into the clouds all the time. They're basically looking at the, the pulse mechanism that allows a laser to be forceful enough to redirect water and air molecules to create precipitation or you know, create a circumstance where things cluster less. So we then create dry, dry um, possibilities from clouds. But that's all done on computer models and it's very wonkish. It's not that sexy. It's not like you walk in and there's an orb floating and like a hologram and you, know, you could see it kind of move from one condition to another. It's like mathematical equations on a board that you look at and it's a uh, very kind of, you know, back high school uh, computer analog, um, you know, programming. But um, a lot of the other things is cool. And if you look at some of the expositions um, for the Dubai Expo, it was supposed to be 2020, it's now 2021, the World's Fair. It's mm -hmm. incredible. I mean, it's, 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 it's so exciting to see what's going on in those pavilions. And if you get a chance, just look up Expo 2021 now and uh, see what every nation state has, has constructed in its pavilion. And the hopeful message from that is that a lot of the pavilions have the theme of sustainability. And they show what best-in-class technology can do. And many of them are focused on mobility. So you have kind of autonomous floating vehicles and things like that. So it's very cool, very interesting. Um, and at the same time, it shows you what possibilities can be um, in a, a space that is, you know, the size of an apartment building at best. Um, so it's kind of like the, the Biennale at, um, in Venice with the art pavilions. It's, it's like that, but with science and innovation. <laughs> And I think once we get people to start showing up at things like that and see mm. what the possibilities are, uh, we're having, you know, these touring shows of, of different climate tech possibilities uh, that are coming into science museums here in the States, at least. Then people can start to be educated about a lot of these things. And I think it'll be less scary mm. for, mm. for the population. And, and I think that's, you know, the hump we have to get over. Um, you know, we're not talking about doing it right now in the real world. Let's start in the virtual world and see mm. where that gets at. I think there's two sort of things there. On the one hand, you know, the time frame, we, like you said, we've got nine years. When that figure first came out, I think it was 12 years. So it's really scary to think that like, that report is now almost a core of the way in and nothing has really changed. Um, and you know, we're already implementing some things on a small scale, right? And there's a chance that, you know, we can keep ramping up and up until um, we match that nine years and it all sort of works out for the best. But then these, these ones that are still very much in research stage are still, you know, fighting against a few million um, dollars worth of research funding before they'd be able to ready to be deployed. I mean, how far away are those? These ones that are going to be the, the shiny art gallery of yeah. tech. Well, I always point to this mm -hmm. because this did not exist 10 years ago. You know, the advances that are in our smartphone that allow us to communicate, shop, do all the things that we do, did not exist a decade ago. 
But then mm. that's why the commercial sector is so important because it can turn things around that quickly. It can, it can make things happen really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even look at Tesla. Tesla didn't exist 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, so now look at the impact it's had. Um, or maybe it, was, it started, I think, in 2007. I went to the opening oh. uh, here in LA. Yeah. So oh. what's that, 13 years? So that's, that's crazy. I mean, you know, to have something that we all know and associate with electric cars and, you know, kind of, you know, a luxury vehicle in this space, mm. that is an entire new system of thinking in a very quick period of time. Same thing with the phone, same thing with, you know, name your technology on, you know, your computer. And I think that's what's needed, you know, Mm. because we can turn things around really, really quickly. And so if we get to that point, that's what gives me hope. You know, if we start to say, let's, you know, bring things back, let's live in smaller spaces, let's reduce, reuse and recycle, that's a yawn and that's Mm. a slump. And, and I think we need something, we need a new way of looking at this. We need a new purpose. We need a new mission. Yeah. I think that's a really good place to end, actually. Um, if that's good with you, I can let you go now. Um, but, yeah, that was, uh, I feel more open to this now and more ready to sort of, like, keep digging in and seeing where it goes um i think there's an essence of inevitability as well because even when you're talking about the expo and what you just said there like it's exciting like i'm excited by some of these things i'm excited by rockets going into space you know like i'm excited by the future and we shouldn't be dampened that that excitement for life shouldn't be dampened by the idea that we're going to destroy the planet um if we can marry those two into being some way that we work with nature or help her out as you put it then all the better right that's right thanks so much for having me it's great to thank you thanks for coming in and yeah um hope everything's going good with everything you sound nice and busy so that's always a good thing crazy cool thanks have a great day see ya Bye. bye